Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret's just-arrived collection of swim and other sun-ready silhouettes. Pack your bags with new styles from the Very Sexy collection, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy push-up bra, in on-trend hues like green and citron and black shine. Rewind to the future with the VS Archives Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. Plus, mix and match with their wide range of bikini tops and bottoms to find your dream suit. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. And welcome to the latest episode of Criminalia, where this season we're exploring the lives and motivations of some of the most notorious lady poisoners throughout history. I'm Maria Tremarki. And I'm Holly Fry. And today we have a special guest with us, Deborah Blum. Deborah is amazing, and you've probably heard of her if you follow Poison at all. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning science journalist, she is the author of six books. She is also now the director of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT. And we worship her. Just so a we little have... light resume there. Just the... <laughs> Nothing to check the box at that one. But we have her here with us today because she is the author of the 2018 New York Times notable book, Poison Squad, and the New York Times bestseller, The Poisoner's Handbook. Deborah, welcome. Do you want to uh, add anything to let us know who you are, our poison expert extraordinaire? <laughs> here like just overwhelmed by how nice you guys are (laughs) really a pleasure to be here and you know you're uh cover so many of my favorite subjects it's actually fun for me 
not to be talking about how to run a uh, remote fellowship program in the time of COVID-19. <laughs> I imagine so. <laughs> so to be talking about how to kill people and other things that are more interesting. Lots of talk about arsenic symptoms. <laughs> Listen. I love that arsenic. We're going to talk to you about some arsenic. Um, we are. We plan to. <laughs> you are, of course, very well known as a journalist, and your love of science has driven so much of your work. Will you talk about how you ended up writing about science, science history, and specifically poison? Sure. That's great territory for me to cover. And, and you know, just stop me. I grew up in the South in Louisiana and Georgia, so I'm perfectly capable of going on about this stuff, you know, for the, till the end of time. So (laughs) if I do this, so I'm a failed chemistry major. My dad was a a entomologist and chemical ecologist at the university of Georgia. And I, and I, when I started college, I wanted to be a chemist. uh, And I discovered the, some of the things that make me a good journalist, you know, uh, having a short attention span, uh, <laughs> did not work at all in a laboratory, and 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 I w- it was actually a danger to myself and others. I set my hair on fire in one memorable afternoon, and uh, also at one point generated, speaking of poison, a toxic cloud that caused them to have to evacuate the freshman chemistry lab. Your so- very first dabbling <laughs> in poisons, right? <laughs> From a very early age, right? So, uh, <laughs> but I, you know, so I went into journalism because. For the same reason that I like chemistry, I like to know how things work. And then eventually realized, after several years of working for newspapers, that I really wanted to combine both of those loves, my interest in knowing how things work scientifically, my interest in knowing how things work in society. Got a grad degree in science journalism with a specialty in environmental toxicology and went off to be a science writer in California, which was where I won the Pulitzer, although that was writing about primate research, right? Um, and, but that launched me into writing books. And as I continued to write books, I kept saying to my agent, I've had the same agent ever since I started writing books, and she's wonderful. I kept saying, you know, I'd really like to write a book in which uh, poisons are characters, because partly because I was grounded in chemistry, and partly because I like murder. I grew up with Agatha Christie and a lot of uh, the early murder mystery writers, Agatha Christie in particular, who really did a lot of work with poisons um, because she had worked in a hospital dispensary in World War I. Um, and and she kept saying, oh, no, Deborah, I have a better idea. Oh, no, Deborah, you could do this. And finally, four books in, she's like, I can't take it anymore. It's like the slow drip of torture. Let's let you write. The book that you want to write and so and she said um just write and and this I have had the same editor for the last three books she said don't write a proposal just write uh, a delicious little two-page letter to your editor and, and I thought that'd be so interesting to sell a book writing two pages so I wrote a proposal on the idea that I was not going to kill my husband but I could and so <laughs> with a lot of stuff that I knew about poisons at the time and my editor at Penguin Press bought the book and then this is my advice to everyone who listens to this podcast don't be me and don't do this because then I sold the book I immediately spent the advance 
<laughs> and, and I'm like, well, what's this book really about? I can't write a book about how to poison my husband. That wouldn't be good. And so I then went into this frantic uh, research that led me to find the two scientists who are at the heart of Poisoner's Handbook, um, which does indeed do what I had originally thought about which was both tell their story, but also look at poisons as the fascinating characters and the personalities that I think they have, which is a very science journalist way of seeing things. I love writing about science I, and I love writing about chemistry. And I actually like writing about really dangerous substances because I think and, and that we need the tools to navigate a chemical world. We live in a chemical world. I am a collection of chemicals myself. I'm inhaling them as we speak, as are all of us. Most of them are not dangerous, but most people don't have the kind of toolkit to say, what should I be afraid of and how do I protect myself and what should I not? And so a lot of what I think science journalists like myself do, or I hope we do, is to provide people who are not, you know, right at the science inner circle or don't follow it regularly, some of the tools that just let them navigate in an intelligent way, because they are smart. They just need the tools. And, and that's really underlies my love of science journalism and is probably one of the reasons I'm here at MIT. So that's my long Southern answer. To <laughs> I love it. It wasn't as long as I thought it would be. No. <laughs> Um, so one of the hurdles that we often have when we're preparing our episodes is sometimes the sparseness of historical records. Just there's nothing out there. Or if it is out there, there might be two or three sources and they all conflict with each other. Um, I imagine that you have come across the same challenge. And um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit over the years of writing about science history. How have you worked around that kind of challenge? Oh, I'm going to love answering this. Um <laughs> Uh, you know, well, reveal the inner nerd that I am, I guess. Um, I, and, and that reminds me, you know, I've done four books now that are narrative histories of science, two about toxicology, but I love writing about history of science, history in general, but because I don't think you really understand where you are unless you know how you got there. And that would be, and, and that's another part of, you know, how did I get here? It's certainly true. One of the lessons for me, especially in the Poison Squad book, which is about the invention of food safety in the United States, and that history both explains uh, how we came up with the idea that, you know, we should regulate for food safety, but also why we do it so badly on a number of levels even today. Right? So uh, having said that, you know, it's a real challenge depending on what you're writing about. When I did Poison Squad, the, my more recent book, Harvey Washington Wiley, who was the chemist at the heart of that story, had been married to a suffragette librarian. I just love that. And she had left all of his papers uh, to the Library of Congress. So it, in that case, because I like to work from original documents, um, it was a matter of did I have enough time to go through 1,400 linear feet of Harvey Washington Wiley papers and documents and newspaper clippings and memos and letters and trying to figure out how to be smart. That I mean, you don't always, in fact, you almost never get that, right? But in that particular case, I was awash in a sea of documents, which was super helpful um, and also daunting. 
Poisoner's Handbook, I think, better gets at, at the, some of the challenges that you mentioned. So as I said, I uh, when I finally, after uh, some fairly hysterical months of research, discovered in the in the newsletters of the Society of Forensic Toxicology that the uh, the toxicologist at the heart of that book Alexander Gettler is considered the father of American forensic toxicology um I, I thought oh this is great I'll just go find a biography of him and there was none and then I went and looked for a biography of his boss Charles Norris who was the you know wonderful and pioneering first uh, medical examiner in New York City, and there was none, right? And so I'm like trolling around, <laughs> trying to find information about these guys, which was the other challenge. And so after much going through, and and some of it, it you can be smart about. You can go on to, you know, and look at what were the contemporary toxicology books, the books about legal medicine published in the early 20th century. And I bought a lot of those um, from used booksellers and I have some of them to this day. Um, but, and then you can look at contemporary journals. I did that too. So I can go into the Journal of the American Medical Association or Science or the Journal of Toxicology and, and look for papers published by Alexander Gettler. And that was really essential for me in trying to both understand or look for papers about arsenic. What did we know about arsenic in 1920? Right. So all of that kind of helps provide a foundation. But then you start kind of saying, well, are there other archives that have some material? So in this case, and this is one of my favorite stories about the challenges of working with archives and very different from the Library of Congress. I discovered that the New York City Municipal Archives had actually archived the letters of the medical examiner's office from 1918 to 1935, just the period with Norris. I thought, oh, this is fantastic. And I talked on the phone to an archivist, an extremely hostile and unfriendly archivist at the Municipal Archive. <laughs> um, but, and I, and it was so, I'm like, oh, I'm so excited about this. And I can't wait. I'm going to come to New York. Let me take you out to dinner when I get there to thank you for your help. And he's like, we do not have to meet in person. I'm like, <laughs> okay. And so I go, but I go to this archive, which is in an old, it's like one of the old city halls of New York. And, mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, uh, fu underfunded and unfriendly, um, as anyone will tell you. And so I go up all shiny and like, hey, I'm here to look at these papers. And literally the guy at the counter says to me, we don't have those. And I go, yes, you do. It was just like being in kindergarten. He goes, no, we don't. I go, yes, you do. He goes, no, we don't. I'm like, come all the way to New York, right? Um, I said, yes, you do. And in fact, here's the name of the archivist who won't speak to me. Um, and here's his phone number and you're welcome to contact him. And so the guy goes off and he talks. I never did see the archivist. Um, to the archivist. <laughs> and then he comes back and says, yes, we do actually have these. Um, and so here's the forms you have to fill out to get them. And I fill out the forms and these boxes come up. They've got like a dumb waiter behind the counter. And these, it comes creaking up in a very atmospheric way with these boxes of files that are covered with dust and apparently some mold because both my, I had my, one of my grad students helping me 
um, when I this was when I was at Wisconsin, uh, and both of us were sick by the end of the oh, week. No. No. <laughs> the rest were drunk because we could have gotten them in other ways. Um, and those files were amazing and really an unknown resource. So even when they were working on the documentary film of Poisoner's Handbook, they went back. They said they had to arm wrestle them out too, right? <laughs> um, so it wasn't like I had suddenly opened the floodgates. So once I had those, I, you know, then looked at other, you know, other archives um, and I went over to the New York City Public Library. I was doing a lot of contemporary, you know, what, what, what was being covered about Geller and Norris and poisons at the time. And so I went to the New York City Public Library because you can get through ProQuest historical newspapers, the New York Times and a lot of the big major dailies. Right. But I wanted like the Brooklyn Eagle and, and small papers. Right. And they had those on microfiche. So a lot of that was going in and finding the stories of microfiche, which I don't recommend, but works. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, you know, printing them out. I did that. And then the one other thing, and then, you know, we did interviews with, um, you know, called people. There were still a few people left who uh, had been students of Gettler, the Gettler boys. And um, one of the things I did when I was doing research, and this will tell you just how anal a researcher I am, is that I had discovered, uh, oh, uh, been able to track down Alexander Gettler's kids and and their kids, and I knew that his son, Joseph, had um, a number of grandkids uh, or his grandkids who still lived in the New York City area, um, and I didn't have their exact loc. and I, I, did, I had their birth records, but not their exact location. So I went to a friend of mine who worked for a newspaper who had some of those super search tools, and I said, if I give you this person's name and their date of birth and where they were born, can you find out for me where they're living now? Uh, and she did. And she said, you know, and don't tell anyone I did this. And, <laughs> and also, I'm not giving you his social security number. I'm like, please don't give me his social security number. Um, but basically, I had the name. It was uh, Paul Gettler, who was one of Alexander Gettler's grandkids. So I used um, white pages and I called every single Paul Gettler in that county. And I just said, hi, my name's Deborah Plum. I'm looking for the grandson of Alexander Geller for a book I'm working on. And I eventually got him. And he was fantastic. And That's he great. put me in touch with some of his siblings, one of whom had had her daughter, so Geller's great-granddaughter, had done a, um, a high school history report on him. And they came to my hotel in New York with her entire presentation and set up the giant poster boards in the lobby of the hotel to, I think, slightly the horror <laughs> the people at the front desk of the hotel. But they had like letters and journals and all kinds of stuff that they lent me. And when I went on book tour and I went back to New York to talk about the book at a Barnes and Noble in New York City, um, the whole Gettler family was there, filling up the first two rows of that, you know. Um, and so that was wonderful. And that was another way that I was able to get at resources that weren't obvious. I think people who read these histories, 
you know, to me, they're a giant mosaic. And because I'm a narrative writer, I'm also looking for the pieces that I can put people in the time. You know, what did the city look like? What did the city sound like? All of those things. Um, but you're building this kind of tapestry or mosaic. Uh, and all of these different pieces matter. And it is a ton of work. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Listen, you listen to true crime podcasts. You know that the world can be dangerous and unpredictable and that there will unfortunately be people who want to hurt each other. And so it's kind of nice to get a little peace of mind by having a good home security system. Just take a few precautions. And I recommend looking at Simply Safe Home Security. I've had my home broken into in the past and it was a terrible feeling, even though nothing that bad really happened. Aside from an intruder, I just really like knowing that I have a security setup that lets me check in on my pets when I'm not home. That is a huge peace of mind giver when I am out traveling. Simply Safe sent me a whole home security system, and I was really, really impressed by the variety of indoor and outdoor cameras they offer. And the whole thing is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash criminalia. That's simplysafe, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash criminalia. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to, but on my day-to-day, -day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low-key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show, or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older <laughs> in that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie. And it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash criminalia. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash Criminalia for 10% off your first order. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. 
For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We have, as you know, talked a lot about women poisoners this season. And I know you have some thoughts on women and poison and why poison is considered a women's weapon why that's not really an accurate characterization. Uh, Will you just share your thoughts on that matter with us? Sure. And in fact, while I was a blogger at Wired, after I did Poisoner's Handbook, I spent about a decade, I still do to some extent, you know, researching and writing about poisonous things. I had a blog at Wired called Elemental and a blog at the New York Times called Poison Pen. Um, and at Wired, I actually did a whole blog on the myth of the female poisoner, right, which I really enjoyed. So, you know, if you go back even to like, you know, early crime fiction, when you actually looked at the modern F- FBI statistics, you see that that's not true. I, I mean, it's kind of women use poison more preferentially over other weapons like guns and knives, right? But if you look at the whole panorama of poisoners, there's more male poisoners than female poisoners. But part of that, again, is that there's more uh, homicidal males than homicidal females, right? There's just more men who kill people as I diss the entire. Um, and so there's a lot. So when you actually look at the numbers, just the great numbers, there's more male poisoners in the United States than female poisoners. If if you analyze the use of weapons, you do see it t- tilts a little more female. And it's actually interesting because I did another book looking at biology of behavior. And one of the things that people talked about was that consistent imbalance on violence, right? And that there had been this idea, for instance, that as you know, guns became more available to women, there would be more shooting deaths caused by women than men, or it would equalize out. But in in fact, it never did, right? Women in general, when you look at crime statistics, um, just don't commit those kinds of crimes. And you could certainly make this case, I'm going off poison for a minute, if you look at the history of mass shootings in the United States, right? Women have access to exactly the same women, but you don't see that pattern of mass shootings, right? There's just some thing socially culturally biologically so something in the mix that so that's why you tend to see this sort of higher number of male poisoners because you see a higher number of male assaults and attempted deaths but the myth of the female poisoner probably dates back to the 19th century um, in which poisons were highly accessible in a domestic way 
right. And women actually had more access to them often than men, if you looked at it in that sense, because they were the caretakers of the home and the distribution of uh, jobs in the 19th century. And so um, they had access for, to pharmaceutical products, right? Arsenic was quite common in um, different tonics and treatments to improve your complexion in Victorian times, right? Fowler's solution is a famous example of that. You find these wonderful advertisements targeting women, you know, <laughs> in which they talk about, you know, how arsenic is going to make you more beautiful yeah. and also how arsenic is entirely safe, which everyone knew wasn't true, but... Yeah, you know, for some reason they don't always tell the truth in advertising. What? But I know. <laughs> and, uh, women have this incredible access to cosmetics, right? Containing one of the world's most famous and and at that time handy homicidal poisons. I mean, arsenic was a fabulous poisoner poison in the 19th century because it's tasteless, it's odorless, it's mimics the symptoms of a natural illness and because they were just figuring out how to detect it in a corpse, right? So um, so women have access to this in a way, and not that a man couldn't walk into a drugstore and buy Fowler's solution, but you know it's widely available to women. And a lot of the home products, there was cyanide in some of the compounds that they used to like polish metal in the house, you know, uh, there was strychnine in pick-me-up tonics. I mean, people had this incredible access to these in a way that triggered no alarm if you casually went and got something that contained arsenic or strychnine. Um, so it was super easy if you were annoyed with your husband or your boyfriend or or was or trying arsenic used to be known as the inheritance powder, you know, to work your way to your inheritance to just, you know, put it in coffee or something. And people did. There were some quite notable women mass poisoners in the 19th century, like Marianne Cotton, right, who did exactly what I said, use, you know, handily available arsenic to work or to, to get eliminate relatives that stood in the way of money to eliminate partners so that she can inherit. I, I mean, I think she was in the neighborhood of close to 20 by the time they caught her, which will tell you. And so that those kinds of you know, really standout mass poisonings tended to shape the idea that women did this um, in, in a way that is both, you know, has a little bit of fire in the smoke, but is partly and largely smoke. We still have so much more from our great chat with Deborah Blum, and that is going to be next week's episode. Which I'm thrilled about because this is easily one of my favorite conversations I have had all year. Oh, yeah. That's not even qualified as in a podcast, et cetera. Just in life, <laughs> one of my favorite conversations all year. And I am so glad that she is very graciously helping us close out our season of Poison. And with that, we're going to do a little What's Your Poison? Right. It actually references something that comes up in episode two, but it also deals with stuff that Deborah talked about, which is uh, Prohibition era. And so we're doing Prohibition era cocktails for this one. And what I thought might be fun for these these ones as we're nearing the end of the season is to talk about kind of a classic cocktail and then how you can approach them to maybe customize them 
to be a little bit more attuned to your palette if they are not for you as written. So the first one is a sidecar. A sidecar, you'll see the the amounts vary slightly, but your basic sidecar is usually one and a half to two ounces of cognac, anywhere from one half ounce to one ounce of orange liqueur. So you're thinking like a triple sec or a Cointreau. You could get crazy and use blue curacao if you wanted, I suppose. Um, And then any... Anywhere from a half ounce to like three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice, like freshly squeezed lemon juice. And some people like to garnish with a sugar rim or they'll put an orange twist or both of those. Um, So I made one. I don't love sidecars. They're just not my jam. I like cognac more in a warm drink. You know, pour it in a a latte or a tea or something. Uh, Perfection. Exactly. So what I decided to do as a test to see if I could make this a little bit more to my liking is actually going to harken back a little bit to one of our earlier cocktails, um, only because it's one of those one of those spirits you may have on hand if you were following along. And it's one that I bought for this. <laughs> and I was like, I should use that in more things. So um, in lieu of orange liqueur of any kind, but I wanted to keep the lemon juice. Otherwise, you're getting too far away from from what a, a sidecar is. I just used ginger liqueur there. Really? How was that? Way more palatable for, for me. You, yeah. Less bitey. And I I enjoyed it a lot more. I still would probably not select that over other cocktails mm-hmm. uh, that, we, <laughs> that we have done this year or just my usual very boring go-to of vodka and Diet Coke. Um, <laughs> like clockwork every time. But, uh, but it is fun. And that's kind of one of the ways that uh, I like to to play with cocktail recipes. So for anyone that's listening, if, if you uh, have not really done that before and you look at it, just, it just becomes a matter of like puzzly problem solving of like, well, this is the one ingredient that is least palatable to me. I wonder what I could do to shift that out and sub in something else that will also go with the other ingredients. These are the experiments that will lead you to magical discoveries. You should. I feel like I'm in your kitchen and you're explaining to me how this works. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. I have a little lounge area in my kitchen. So you just sit there right. and I'll just mix in different things to see which one works I'll best for you. I'll just taste test for you. <laughs> that sounds great. And we can trade. Sounds you can great. just sit and I'll, you know, I'll make a taste test. Because it doesn't seem fair otherwise. <laughs> Oh, I don't mind. I'll I'll prep all night. I love it. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that is that is this week's poison, a sidecar or the sidecar variation of your choice. I was thinking too that it might be interesting to try other fruit liqueurs in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think if you did like an apple liqueur in there, it could be really interesting. If you did, um, I'm trying to think because it is a little bit. You know, you're limited. What goes yeah, well with cognac exactly. and lemon juice that won't create cacophony. <laughs> In terms of taste. Um, But, you know, the worst thing that happens, the worst thing that happens exactly if you make a terrible mistake is that you spit it out and dump it down the drain. And it's a small enough drink that you're not wasting a lot of alcohol in that case. This is my wisdom (laughs) of the week. (laughs) Don't sweat it if you throw out an ounce and a half of cognac. It's fine. It's okay. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us this week. Do not forget to join us next week for the second part of Deborah's interview. We will see you then. Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.